Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So today I am super happy to be with the amazing social founder, James Partridge, OBE, founder of the hugely important charity Changing Faces, a charity that supports people with facial disfigurements. I've known James for many years now and I am a huge admirer of his dedication and really importantly of the impact that he's had. I'm so excited to hear your story, James, and welcome to Social Founders. It's Thank a privilege you. to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure, a pleasure. So before we jump into your personal story, James, just tell our listeners a little bit about what Changing Faces is and what it does. Well, Changing Faces was set up in 1992 with the intention of creating new help, particularly psychosocial help, uh-huh. for people with facial and body disfigurements. To argue that that sort of help should be routine in the NHS, shouldn't be an optional extra. And thirdly, possibly most fundamentally, to challenge public attitudes about facial disfigurement. So important. So those three goals were there at the start and they remain there today, I believe. So, you know, that is very satisfying 27 years on. Tell us a little bit about your own personal founder story and what was the catalyst. Um, What were you doing before you set it up? What was your life journey going to be? Well, that's a good question. There's a photograph here that shows me in 1970, aged 18. And I'm happy-go-lucky. I've had the whole world at my, you know, on my plate. And I was heading for Oxford and the Mm -hmm. city probably and, you know, business, blah, blah, blah. So an incredible life of of ease and privilege. Privilege. Certainly a well, you know, I had middle class, upper middle class background, public school. Yeah. And uh, although it was a liberal public school, I was completely unaware of some of the issues that I was going to face. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just the day or 10 days before I was due to leave school, I managed to turn over a Land Rover in Wales. And it blew up. Horrendous. Horrendous. It blew up, and I was the last one out. Yeah. And I thought I was just singed, but 
actually have is far worse than that. I've been wearing a, a polo neck sweater jumper yep. that had nylon in it, and it burned incredibly badly across my face, and um, and forty percent of my body got ser- seriously burned. James and so, that. from being an eighteen-year-old looking at Oxford and the world, I was then put into a burns unit, and that was my life for well a long time. It it, it just is beyond imagining. For someone like me, I don't know how you coped with the with the pain as well as the shock and the horror. Tell us well, a little bit 1970 about. Pain control was not bad, uh-huh. um, if as long as you were prepared to be a pincushion, you know, bush, bush, bush. Yeah. Um, but I suppose psychologically, the difficult stuff was actually coming to terms with what I'd done to myself. And you'll, you'll, some of these photos are going to be on the Social Founders website. Yeah, and it was three months before I looked in a mirror. But I could tell from people that came to see me, particularly family, that this was not something that was just a little, a little challenge. Mm. This is a serious mess of a face. And I had no idea about plastic surgery, mm-hmm. anything about that. Um, but they assured me, oh, we'll get you looking better, and da 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 da. Little did I know that that was going to be five years of surgery. Wow. And it was remarkable surgery. I went in every vacation from university, and I took a year off. Yeah. And, and they, put, they put a lot of things right. They gave me a top lip, they gave me a new nose cover, they gave me a new chin, which comes from my back. Unbelievable. For 1970s surgery, it was amazing. Thank you for sharing them with us, James. Well, That's really amazing. Have a look at this one with the tube from my back now being pushed up onto my face. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I had no idea about any of this. Yeah. But I'd also pretty early on realised that these plastic surgeons were not miracle people. I needed to find ways of living with a different face, and that meant going down, down the corridor. Yeah in the hospital, going shopping, going out into the public domain, yeah. and it was terrifying. And you had to find a strength that you never knew you had, presumably. A resilience, physical and courage, psychological. Courage yeah. to push yourself yeah. to do it. But most abundantly of all, I had to learn social skills that enabled me to manage all the various insults, inquiries, staring, ridicule, um, comments and questions, little children coming up, all of these presented me with, oh, how am I going to cope with this? And I had to learn new skills to manage all of that. And how did you do that? How did you find the strength? By trial and error. Mm -hmm. I went to Oxford. To Oxford University. Oxford University. Fantastic. About nine months after the accident. That takes some resilience and courage as well. It wasn't an easy thing to do. But in the November of that first term, I happened to be in Blackwell's bookshop, and by accident, my eyes lit on a book called Stigma Uh by Irving Goffman, The Management of Spoiled Identity. And I looked at it, and I thought, "Mm, this might be something about me and I opened it and the first page was quite clearly about me how fantastic well it was and it wasn't he was a sociologist studying people who were stigmatized 
people with facial disfigurements, but other causes of stigma too. And he analysed the the new career that we had to undertake, which was on the outside. We were always on the fringe. People didn't look at us with respect. Mm -hmm. And we didn't look at ourselves with respect. Most important here. Very, very important. I hid the book, I bought it, I hid it, I read it and read it and read it. It didn't give me answers, but it enabled me to jump into a sort of third-person position Uh so I could see myself doing things, going into, I don't know, a social gathering, wanting to flirt with somebody over there, um, meeting new friends and strangers going to a job interview. I could see myself. I kind of became a student of social interaction. So that was so, that was really lucky that you saw that book then, actually, oh, because it was tremendous immense, support. Immense. Well, the funny thing is, if you read it, it's not support. It's an analysis. Mm. But it gave me an analysis. I could understand what was going wrong. Did you, did you get any... Uh, counselling support or any psychological support? No, there was, a, there was a social worker who was trying very hard. I think the key word in all of this was I had to find my self-respect. Mm. If I respected myself looking like this, mm-hmm. then I would project that immediately to others, or I could. And so I found that I, with her help a little bit, but with my family and friends' help, I started to cultivate interests and talents, things that boosted my self-esteem because I had traded on my looks. Ah, yeah, yeah. My looks were a really important part of my self-concept. No longer. I couldn't do that. 18, 19, 20 is very young still. Not an easy time. On the the other hand, very permissive society, everybody wearing long hair. So that's freedom, James. You yep. can just do that too. And my hair got very, very long uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, you know, so on. But gradually, probably five years on, I was able to say to my surgeon, thank you, you've done an amazing job reconstructing me. Yes. I now need to go and try to be a citizen. Yeah. And at that stage of your life, so this is like now in your early 20s, did yep. you have any concept at all that you might end up being a social founder, what, what did you think you were going to do career-wise? I had absolutely no idea. All my ambitions had been blown away. So I was having to remake myself. Uh-huh. And the first thing I did was I realised that I'd got some health interest and some economic interests because I'd done economics at, at university. So I did a course, yeah. a master's course, and got a job as a health economist. Interesting. And so I was sort of combining the things that I knew I was good at, um, and that helped. But it wasn't really until 10 years later, I guess, that all the injustices that I had felt through my recovery um, and the lack of support systems and the failure of public attitudes to to accept me really kicked in. It was in the middle 80s, you may remember, there were three big fires, Piper Alpha, 
Bradford City yes. and King's Cross. Yes. I just walked through King's Cross this morning yeah. and the plaque is still there. It seems to me smaller, but those were enormous events. Yes, and that was the big fire in King's Cross Absolutely. That, where a lot of people died. And from and off many the back more. of those three fires, I got an invitation to write a book That's by it. Penguin, no less. So I was suddenly, and by this time, I was a dairy farmer in Guernsey. How did you end up as a dairy farmer? You've got to tell our listeners that story first. Well, I I mean, I suppose this is my first entrepreneurship stuff because I met my wife, who's a Guernsey woman. Yes. And born and bred there. And we both kind of worked a bit on farms. And we were very heavily influenced by organic farming uh, philosophies and the good life and and so on, self-sufficiency. And so we decided to have a crack at it. And we bought this derelict farm in Guernsey and thought, well, uh, what? And so we built it up. So that's interesting. So I thought I knew you really well, but I never knew that you'd been a dairy farmer entrepreneur. Absolutely. And of course, those skills must have been invaluable when you started setting up Changing Faces. Precisely. And and not just that uh, I developed the skills, but I kind of perfected them. I knew that I could win you know, over a bank manager. Seriously. (laughs) Do you think that's one of the top tips for social founders that you can win over a bank manager? Well, it's an interesting test. (laughs) If you can't go in with decent data and decent evidence... The bank manager is never going to lend you a penny. Listen to that one, social founders out there. Decent data, decent (laughs) evidence. I think that's key. Well, and of course, the other thing that I did while, and I was by the time my book came out in 1990, I was a teacher of economics at the local girls' school part-time to try to keep the money coming in. So, So between your health economics jobs, being an entrepreneurial dairy farmer a teacher of economics, you built up a lot of skills. Let's go back to the book. You said that was the catalyst. Well, it was. For um, changing faces. But I don't think I would have done anything beyond the book. The book was great to write. Uh 20 years on from my accident, I was given the chance to write down the lessons that I'd learned. So it wasn't an autobiography. It was, come on, if this happens to you, what would be useful? So it's targeted at people... All their families, carers, yep. social workers who have... Any form of disfigurement, if it happens to you, the chances are that you're going to have to deal with reconstruction of some sort. You're going to have to raise questions about how do, we, how do I need how much surgery, how much medical treatment. But the other side, the other side so this is reconstructing your face, and the other side is very, very much about reconstructing your life. Yeah, and really this part of the book was very, very important because at last I distilled down what it was that I had done. I had rebuilt my self-esteem. Fantastic. And only in short paragraphs and sentences and chapters, I managed to put down a lot of it. And possibly the most important chapters stemmed from a chapter called A People Scared of You. Ooh. Yes, I remember that being a big issue, actually, when I first came across you and Changing Faces. So I used it as an acronym. Oh, oh, tell us Staring, more. Staring, curiosity, anguish, recoil, embarrassment and dread. And those are the common reactions yeah. you are yeah. going to meet. Yeah. And get get up to speed. You know, you can deny that, that going to happen. Those are don't. seven 
big words to have to live with, especially if you're a young person. Absolutely. And I know that Changing Faces supports a lot of young people. And children, too. And just to go back to the book, though, yep. it's now in its seventh edition, is that yep. correct? Yeah. That's amazing, James. So 20 years. And it's 25 still, years. 25 years since you wrote edition. it. I think the thing about the book was that it put me in touch with some psychologists who I didn't even know were there, right. including one who had written a PhD on this subject, the psychology of facial disfigurement. And how did that make you feel, react? What was... I was terrified to meet her. <laughs> I met her on a Gloria Honeyford TV show, no. and she was reviewing my book. And in the green room beforehand, she got out her book and said, have you seen this? And had you? No. Oh, dear. <laughs> I hadn't seen it, and I flicked through it, and there were 30 pages of references, and I realised I hadn't read one of them. <laughs> but well, I wonder we, how many copies her book has sold well, compared not, to not, yours. No, probably not, yeah. but what happened next was that we got on the show, and I was expecting her to tear my book to shreds. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, it's really, really important. He's reached exactly the same conclusions as we have. Fantastic. From two totally different directions. Yeah. So, so you, were, you were well matched on the show. Yeah. Anyway, this woman, Nicola Rumsey, Professor Nicola Rumsey, became my academic partner. And it was her research that I read, I consumed it, that persuaded me that what I was saying probably had a wider application yep. than just being in a book. Uh -huh. We should develop programs. We should argue that these programs should be part of the NHS. Yes. And we should create a campaign to change public attitudes. Fantastic. And so from that realisation, and when you say programs, you don't mean television programs or radio programs or nope. in those days. I mean, mean, I mean workshops and one-to-one -one help yep. and... You yep. know, self-help guides that now are available on the website. All sorts of support systems that are around children, young people, their families yep. and adults yep. who have disfigurements yep. of all sorts. Yep. And remembering also this was at a stage before the internet was around. Definitely. As well. Definitely. So tell our listeners, you, you came to this realisation that there was a need for more support out there. And, and you had some great ideas about what you could actually deliver how did that turn into an organisation, a charity? What did, you, what did you do? How did you find the money? How did you go about setting it up? How did you find... Well... What, how did you, what were the stages you went through? Because actually quite a lot of our listeners are interested in setting up something themselves. So not only is it interesting for those of us that are social founders ourselves, but for people yeah. who might have a very important idea that they're thinking of turning into a charity or a social enterprise... There were probably three things that I had to do. Uh -huh. um, one, I had to persuade my wife. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to say that. That caught me unawares. If well, I, I didn't I'd have her support, mm -hmm. and not just half-hearted support, but absolutely 100%, yeah, okay, you're absolutely crazy, James, but let's give it a go. Yep. If I hadn't got that, I wouldn't have done it. How interesting. I never thought because you were Because we say had that. three small people. We were completely committed to dairy farming and living in Guernsey. And we just got to the point where, you know, 12 years on, we were getting the, the business to, to, to work. So you, and did you drop the, the dairy farming or yeah. did she take it on? No. What, what, what no. happened? It had to be oh, sold. The herd was sold. <gasps> it was catastrophically difficult to that do. That was a huge decision. That's then. the first thing. 
Wow. The second thing was that I knew I had to find somebody who was outside my sphere but knew the charity sector. Uh-huh. And I needed to go and see him or her. And I found him in Guernsey, yeah. a guy called Greville Mitchell, uh-huh. who had been a property developer in, and had funded the local hospice. Right. Very, and lots of AIDS charity work and so on. And I went to see him and I said, Greville, you're probably, you know, I don't know you at all, but I've got an idea and I'd be really grateful if you could put your eye over it and tell me if you think it's absolutely balmy. And at this stage, you were asking him for advice, not for cash. Correct. Yeah, yeah. This was the concept. Yeah. He said, oh, well, what, have you got a business plan? And I thought, oh, no. Well, I mean, I have. Here's a, you know, three bits of paper stuck yes. together with a drawing pin. I mean, it was painful to give it over to him. Um, but a few days later, I got a letter from him saying, James, I think it's a very good idea. Yeah. And... I'll support it, and I'll go on supporting it. Wow. And here's £5,000 to start it. And that's a lot of money. This is 25 years ago, James, we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a lot of money. It was huge, and it was a vote of massive proportions. And did you already have your wife's support? You didn't tell us whether she did support you. Did that that happen? No, no. You had that already. The September 91 date was getting her support, and then... I put enough together to make a charity, you know, look like a possibility. Um, And then you got... And the third thing that I had to do was to find trustees who would stand by me, but not stand too close. Yes. My first chairman, thank his soul for being so brilliant, was a guy called Campbell Adamson. Sir Campbell Adamson. Very well known, very well known. Chairman of... Abbey National, yes. he had helped Sane to set up Marjorie Wallace. Yes. He had been involved with um, oh, Vicky Clement Jones's um, charity as well. Yeah. He knew the charity world. And I went to see him and he said, Well, I think I know why you're here. <laughs> um, tell me about the other people you've approached to yes. be trustees. And I read off this wonderful list of you know, eminent people that I thought would be quite good. Yeah. And he then said, um, yeah, very impressive. Are they all yes, James, people? <laughs> this is great. That's a, that's a really important indirect tip for other social partners. Oh, it was critical. And what, did, what was your answer to his I question? Said, no, I think they're yes, James, pe- yes, James, but people. Mm, mm. They would never hesitate from criticising or challenging. And did you really mean that? I well, I knew that one of them, particularly a plastic surgeon, was definitely of that sort. Uh-huh. I knew that a friend of mine that eventually became the treasurer was not going to give me an easy time of it. Yeah. So, no, I think I did know. But Campbell, of course, then said, "All right, I will do this as long as you understand that sometimes I'm going to be pulling the reins back yes. to stop you." Yes. You know, you can't just be allowed free reign. So right from the beginning, you had the right model in place from, I didn't from, from know governance perspective. I, yeah, but I, I had, with Campbell's help, yeah. I, did, I did sort of gather the essence of good governance. Yeah. And that gave me freedom, in a way, mm. to do things. I knew I had to report to them. Accountability was good. We agreed a kind of what we would call a risk management 
um, arrangement. Yes. In those days, it was more about, you know, how much reserves do we actually need to do this? Yes. And were you from the start, were you going to be paying yourself a salary? Yeah. Because that I think was, that's, that's an issue often for founders of charities and yeah, social enterprises. I made enterprises. it quite clear that I couldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. So if people were concerned, here's the money, this yeah. is what's going to be paid, so let's be transparent about it. Well, that also gives gives the organisation a professionalism right Absolutely. from the start as well. That this isn't just a gang of volunteers doing no. something. It's actually no. a professional organisation. Uh, we wanted it to with be clear professional, goals. but we had no idea at the outset. You know, May 1992, we launched it. It happened to be a low news day, and we got quite a lot of good coverage, yeah. which was great. And had you raised more money by then? Yes, I had got King's Fund support. Lloyd's TSB Foundation, or actually it was just called the TSB Foundation, yes, had given me some seed corn. Uh-huh. And I guess I was probably looking for 65, 70K in the first year, and I'd probably got 50 towards that. Which again helps. Was quite a lot of money in those yeah, days. Absolutely. And just for our listeners as well, this was before the days of the lottery oh, money. Yeah. There was very little money around yeah. for charities, and you had to really fight hard to get every yeah. penny. Especially for something new, do you think it was? In a way, or do you I think, think that the need was so obvious that you could make such a good case that people were, were excited people, about? There were new. people who said, "You'll never raise money for disfigurement, James. Mm. Just forget it. Mm. You know, you're going to be a Cinderella charity." And I said, "No, I'm not. This is this is important, and I'm not going to do it on the, you know, on a very small budget." Yeah. Um, one of the other things I decided very early on was that. We would be, we would have incredibly bright designs for everything. Nice. So we were not going to portray disfigurement in any way negatively. And at that stage, also, I remember it was that was shortly before I set up the media trust. Actually, and I remember one of the things that really shocked me about the charity world coming into it new was how dowdy it was. Oh yeah. How dull. Nobody bothered painting the front doors of their offices. Absolutely. People, the volunteers and the staff, and most importantly, the beneficiaries would be in terrible, horrible, grey, miserable offices with the wallpaper peeling off and the toilets being disgusting. Let alone bright. of that because we were renting in a very yeah. <coughs> cheap and cheerful place but no we got a designer a guy called Chris Binding from Bristol uh-huh. who just took the idea and just made it happen he he took photos in a way that enabled us to show sharp not always smiling people but people who were you know getting on with their life disfigurement was not an impossibility yeah. it was doable yeah. with the right support yeah. And clearly, the charity name was an interesting one. Why you call it Changing Faces? That's tricky. It sounds like surgery. And we had to get around that. That was quite a complicated bit, particularly as the internet came on. Yes. Um, So we had the strap line, Changing the Way You Face Disfigurement. Uh Changing the Way We All Face Disfigurement. So that sort of worked. Um, And you've stuck with the same name from day one. Absolutely. Still called Changing Faces. Absolutely. And has a fantastic brand. I think so. And we've rebranded a couple of times, particularly a couple of years ago, just to sharpen it up and... It's it lovely was, and bright, actually. There's a, a great photo that we've got on the Social Founder website of you with the logo painted on your face. I think oh, it was yeah. at one of your big anniversary yeah. receptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the 25th. The yeah. 25th. But, but actually, the, the, the most pleasing thing in a way for me is that the, 
that the charity kind of grew through people's support. Mm -hmm. The champions we had, the advocates that came on board, they just loved being involved. And so we, you know, from the first year when we had, I don't know, six or 700 people contact us, suddenly we were helping a 1,000 people a year, and quite a lot of them were saying, well, what else do you want me to do, and can I come? And some were saying, thank you very much, I'm off to spend the rest of my life doing other things. Yeah. You've, you've helped me. And um, you seem to have got a really good mix of people with facial disfigurements and yeah. other disfigurements who are prepared to step out into the media and yeah. be, be seen and, and talk very positively about their lives, but also celebrities. Like you've got Benjamin Zephaniah supporting mm-hmm. you and, mm-hmm. and you've had other celebrities along the way. You've done a really great job around media and storytelling. How have you combined that mix of the celebrity with the person with the disfigurement? And I think the challenge that we had and all charities have is raising money and profile. Uh-huh. And in the middle of the 2000s, it was an era of quite flush corporate money. Yes. And we decided to try doing a gala, a gala dinner. Interesting. And a bit by accident, I happened with a colleague, Henrietta Spaulding, to have met Rory Bremner. Ah. And he had kind of fallen for us. And we, yeah. of course, fallen for him. Yes. And and so we said, Rory, you know, we don't want to put any pressure on you, but any chance that you might like to come and do a, a gala for us? That, he, said, he said, of course, I'd love to. That was such a coup because... <gasps> All charities were desperate to get him at that stage. He was Absolutely. one of the top, top celebrities. So 2005, and 2006, he came. Yep. And then he introduced us to Jan Ravens, and, mm-hmm. who was just on the rise, mm-hmm. and John Culshaw. And, and from then, other celebrities gathered. And we, we kind of attracted, I think, a, a very positive group of people who, who really understood. Yeah. They really understood, and Rory spoke at our 25th, no, our 20th um, anniversary event, and said, you know, I know this personally because a member of my family has been through this. Interesting. Simon Weston was there. Yeah, I remember Simon Weston. These people could... Just remind listeners about Simon Simon Weston's story very quickly. was one of the soldiers very severely injured in the Falklands War. And he was... By he he would say, look, James, I'm a fading celebrity now, but (laughs) I can't do Welsh, but, but... yeah, it was important and to have celebrities, and I think actually celebrities of the very highest level. Yeah, I would I would really counsel you know charities not to be willing to accept less than the highest grade if you can get them. Oh, that's interesting. Because I think. With the heist celebrities, we had Joanna Lumley came, come to something. I mean, you know, she is just a joy. Yeah. And she would only do 10 minutes, of course, but now people turn up. I'm sure that lots of people listening will be saying, well, that's all very well to say that, but how on earth do you get them? How did you, as you know, such a driving force as the founder of Changing Faces, how did you do that? How did you find them? Um, there's a certain What's amount of relationship that building that you have to do. And this is true of high net worth individuals too. Um, and you don't get them all. 
you get some, mm-hmm. but you have to build relationship. And was your board really important to that as well? Um, to some extent, but no, I wouldn't say so. so. It was mainly you personally. It was me personally being sent in, but I think the board from time to time backed me up in a uh-huh. very significant way. Uh-huh. The moment that we decided 10 years on from the launch of the charity, mm-hmm. so we're now in 2002, to try to create an asset for the charity to buy a headquarters in central London. Ah, interesting. So we had yeah. a capital appeal. Yeah. For one and a half million to two million pounds, and that's that's the building off Tottenham Court Road, correct? And you still the Squire that. Centre. That's, that's a great investment. And we had people come out of the woodwork, literally, to say, "I like what you're doing. Uh-huh. I want to support you." Yeah. I also want. They said not to see this as a short-term thing. You've got a long generational job to do. Fantastic. So, James, we've heard lots about the drivers for you starting Changing mm. Faces and what it was like and the things you put in place to begin with, your vision. What were the key stages, you know, five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in? What, what, what were the times where you found it really much easier to be the social founder or much more challenging. Tell us a little bit about two or three key stages. I think the first 10 years were remarkably honeymoon-like because things were going well for us. We had great success with various um, academic research projects that were evaluating what we were offering in our workshops and our one-to-ones. Oh, just, I'm just going to say that that is brilliant that you're doing that from the start. We were. Because so many charities yeah. were not able to find the resources to do the evaluation and the actual support to the beneficiaries. Nicola Rumsey said she would not support the charity unless it was underpinned by research and good evidence. And how did and, you find the money for that? Um, well, we went off and found it. Yeah. Primarily from Nuffield Provincial Hospitals Trust. They were fantastic, Uh but a a number of other donors. And effectively, she and I set up a small research team at the University of the West of England, and it started to pump out things. And then we started to set up units in Bristol to, you know, as experimental units, and they worked. And you had the research backing up what you were doing all the time. And then the university said, how about setting up a research centre? You know, so suddenly we were creating the Centre for Appearance and Disfigurement Research 10 years on from the start of the charity. So we knew that we were doing things Mm. well Mm. and that people were valuing what we were doing. And did that help with the media coverage as well? Enormously, enormously. And and actually the... T- at 10 years, 2002, we had to, I had to make a decision, you know, do you want me to stay? It's going pretty well. You could get somebody else to, you know, take it on if it ah, hadn't been. So that's interesting, that, that old dilemma about when do we leave as social founders. So why were you thinking then that perhaps you I'd should leave? I'd say to Campbell that at 10 years we should have a rain check and because I knew that 10 years might be the moment. But he said, no way. Actually, he was no longer with us, I think, but the new chairman said, no way, no, we're just on a roll here. Let's, And we set up a capital appeal, and the new chairman, a guy called Stephen Woodford, yes. who's now chief executive of the Advertising Association, he was really important in helping us drive that and expand out. And he said, right, let's do some advertising campaigns. 
So suddenly we were no longer just doing little things with individuals and families. We were appearing on the on the underground in posters. Amazing, which in itself is making people think twice Absolutely. about facial disfigurement. And so that was a huge breakthrough. So come the middle of the 2000s, 2006, things were going well and we were comfortably meeting all our financial demands and then, of course, the credit crunch. And by this time, had you already done the capital appeal for the building? Yes, but we'd, we'd leveraged the most amazing deal from two people, Jeff and Fiona Squire, who offered to underpin the purchase of this building yeah. with a loan of a million pounds, as long as we paid back the loan over five years. And did you have to pay interest? Well, and then they said, and we'll pay the interest out of our capital, uh, out of our charitable Incredible. foundation for those five years. James, one of, one of the things that you are amazing at is is connecting with people, keeping them involved, supporting you, never letting go of those contacts. Crucial. Being absolutely clear with people about how they can help you. And being you know. absolutely honest with them that things were not easy. Some of those years, particularly as we got up to the five-year payment date, July 2009, if you can think about what the economy looked like in those times, it was horrible. You're looking worried, James. Can you tell me about those those years? I I became worried. And it was pressure, and this was probably the first financial pressures that we'd really faced. And we weren't sitting on lots of reserves, but we were sitting on an our headquarters. And you had that asset already. We had that asset. And I guess the the years that followed that, 2010 through to 2015, were very tricky years. And how did you personally, as the leader, as the social founder, how did you cope with that? And did you have terrible moments of self-doubt in the middle of the night or... And you know what? What advice would you give to anyone listening? Tell us your story about how you coped with that, because I think that what I see again and again and again amongst our founders is that incredible ability to find some strength from nowhere and keep going. Yeah, I think I felt a huge responsibility to the staff that we had, probably mm. twenty-five staff, thirty staff. So to match their wage bill and their salary bills, to continue to do what we were doing. I refuse to let the stupidities in the financial markets, you know, stop us doing what we were about. Um, 2008, we launched the campaign for face equality at a time when people were saying, oh, come on, you can't do that. I mean, it's, you know, we're in depression. I said, no, come on. Face equality is an important campaign whenever and we're going to do it now. And tell people very quickly a little bit about that, because I remember that campaign. It was amazing. Well, it started with posters, and they were quite edgy posters. We did a public attitude survey that showed 9 out of 10 people found it very difficult to associate positive characteristics with people with facial disfigurements. 9 out of 10. Which goes I mean, right back to what you were telling us earlier bias, about the scared. Absolutely. And, and people were demonstrating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did all sorts of work with businesses, with the media, uh, with schools. We had a fantastic program, all of which was very hard to keep funded. And that was the real annoyance for me. And I, I guess workaholism was definitely part of my life. I was working every hour that you could think of. Yeah. 
And um, what, what, by the way, what happened to Guernsey during this time? Well, was your wife back in Guernsey or, and your yeah, kids? Well, we well, we moved to Bristol for a period of years, and then we we ended up sort of weekly commuting from yeah. Guernsey. So yeah. it, and having a flat in London, but I mean, it was just really hard graft. And and how did you? How did you find resilience? How did you? Well, I think I'm a fairly resilient person. Because you've been through such stuff. I've been through quite a lot. But I also think that I was so driven by the cause. Mm. And I'm deeply unhappy with the idea that, you know, the finances of something should stop good things happening. And so I would struggle i'd ask people completely inappropriately probably to <laughs> to fund things and they said oh thanks i'm really pleased you asked excellent so, so you, being brave you and just taking that leap, yeah and and being absolutely clear about the cause like you were saying and the vision of what you're doing and, the, and the need yeah and not not um sentimentalizing it not sugarcoating it mm. you know this is hard there's some stuff here that is not easy to deal with um but we can, because we've got where we are, 25 years on, we can make further progress. And were people telling you that the NHS should be funding it, by the way? Were you, were, yep. Was there a sense that, you know, why we have this as a charity, actually well, it should be? And the Macmillan nurses and um, other types of, of, you know, NHS professionals that are funded by charities was an interesting model. We set up Changing Faces practitioners Mm -hmm. and got them embedded in the NHS. But then, guess what? Austerity came along. And so innovation just didn't happen in the NHS. So we were faced with really difficult decisions as to how how to keep going. We also took on a service from the Red Cross that looked like a golden egg, but it actually turned into a financial problem burden really and a logistic nightmare yeah did you ever have a time when you actually thought changing faces might go under yes and i think the i managed to find a way to simon stevens the chief executive of the nhs yes and i said to him look simon this is this is happening because of the way the nhs is funded so, it, so was, I was in deep advocacy here. Yeah, and again, reinforcing your network, your connections, your ability to go in. Absolutely. To whether it's Rory Bremner, the celebrity, or the head of the NHS, Absolutely. you could go in. I and went make to the a case. charity um, directors um, meeting where Simon Stevens was talking, and I raised a question, and I made it deliberately difficult. And he couldn't answer it there and then. He, but he said, do come and see me afterwards. So you were able to follow up. Of course. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, you know, yeah. you learn the techniques for trying to get attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had some politicians who were right with us too. So that was very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. James, you'll remember that at the very first event we did for Social Founders, we oh. asked, we had, I think, about 40 or 50 social founders in the room and we asked people what their issues were and there were lots of stories of you know the, the, the joys and the, the the successes but the the theme of loneliness came up quite a lot i was quite surprised how many of those social founders in the room many very 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 successful said that that was an issue i think Did it, you find it that? became an issue for me um and i'll be very open here the collapse of kids company 
was an extremely important event in my life. Because, Why? Because Camilla had been a fantastically successful founder. Yes. And it became apparent that, for various reasons, her board had lost contact with her or she hadn't informed her board and and the amount of publicity around you know wait a second founders are really dangerous creatures yeah i you remember know, they can they can do all sorts of things i think created a different mood in the charity yes uh, that i was running which was hard to put a finger on it at the time but i certainly felt that having had very much yes james but trustees i was now dealing with some more difficult um circumstances because so it coincided with a very tough time externally with austerity across the public sector the corporate sector finances were not good and now this big doubt about whether it's right for a founder to stay too long and you'd been there how long oh 23 years or something like that so that was around the same time and i think the loneliness was more the sense that i was having to argue more and more with trustees for support Uh and that's not to say i never argued with them but that there was a a friendliness in the discussion Mm. Um, but it became more and more um, hard, mm. and I mean hard and risk-averse, and it was a very difficult time. Now, whether that was the trigger for me saying, I'll step aside, I don't think it was. I think I had always intended, if possible, to find a way of broadening out changing faces to be yeah. an international yes. effort yes and i really wanted to do that before i was you know finished yeah, yeah. Uh, and so at 25 years by which time i was 65 uh-huh. you know it seemed about right to yeah. say okay yeah. i'll step aside and i will then concentrate on this international work. And I'm just going to say that Changing Faces was no way anywhere like in, in the state that Camilla's charity was. You know, it, it was, well, A, it still is around and going, going very strong. And, and B, you've done an amazing job with it. And there was never any, any worries about that. But just, and just very quickly, who did you, when, when there were those tough times, who did you go to? Who did you talk to? Was it your? You know, did you? Was it your wife? Was it? I think you and I had some great conversations yeah, at the did. time. Actually, we it did. I mean, mutual I, founder support. You look for um, you look for people that you really, you know, know will trust you and mm, listen. Mm, um, they might not agree with everything you say. Mm, I had two treasurers in the in the years up till then: um, Andrew Jarvis and Mike Ignitsky, who were both absolute rocks for me yeah. so um, you you made sure that you had people around you both on the board involved with the organization and, but when they but left they stayed close to me and they were concerned for my welfare and it was not an easy time yeah. um but you know i don't think stepping aside is ever easy for for founders it's a big issue for it's everybody. a big issue yeah. And I don't know that I did it as well as I could have done. My intention was to to get out of sight and sound and concentrate on 
developing an international program for changing faces. Yeah. Um, but also you were so... The thing about founders who've been involved for so long, you were so personally associated with it in indeed. every way because it had come out of your own... My wife diversity. says that, you know, they... That this network of international contacts I had was was like a spider's web. <laughs> I, you know, I could point to all sorts of people around the world who were friends and allies. Yes. And I wanted to join them up. Which is a tremendous but, asset. Yeah. And did the board feel strong enough to take forward the succession planning? The- they did. And I think, as it turned out, they also decided that they really needed to concentrate on the UK. Uh-huh. So Changing Faces decided, no, it was going to be concentrating on the UK. So, well, that was not all that easy for me. Because you were hoping to do the international work within Changing Faces. Within Changing Faces and draw up all sorts of, you know, joint joint programs and joint ventures and so on. But as it's turned out, I've now created another thing. So tell us, so so in the end you you left Changing Faces after 25 years... Mm-hmm. With a great celebration, celebration, it was a fun, fantastic wasn't it? party, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, just everyone so wowed by everything you've done over those twenty-five years. And it was the day before Face Equality Day. Yeah, so the timing was perfect, it and was you must great. have felt super, super proud. I did, and I do. Yeah, and the, the, the and then you you already had your concept of the international connections. Mm, I created it. So I tell could... us a little bit about how you went from mm. you started again, really, in a I funny did. kind of way. I did. I came how back. How did that feel? I did six months research and did, talking to all sorts of people around the world, mm. NGOs, charities, mm. um, professionals, and all sorts of people. And what I came back with was that there was a huge interest in our programs, our help side our campaigning, people wanted to create voluntary alliances and work together and and I had this extraordinary conversation with another one of my great allies through all this thick and thin, Susan Scott Parker. Oh yes, she's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And and as I was explaining this, she she said, Hold on a second, James, wait wait a second. Why voluntary alliances? And I said, Well, and because I didn't think that, you know, you alliances are voluntary, aren't they? She said, yeah, but there are different types of alliances. <laughs> Let's have a look. And so the brain got moving. Yeah. And before long, I was talking to all sorts of people that had set up alliances from yes. Teach teach for All to all sorts of different social founders' models. Yes. And there are lots of them. There are many, yeah. um, <laughs> and And so Face Equality International was a kind of natural development, and we've now got 30 NGOs around You've the world. You've got 30 already? 30 and that's from just, a launch in November, last that's November. That's incredible. And they pay then? Is that where you're coming well, to? Well, no, what you say... we got was we got... Um, my, my model was mm-hmm. uh, for the first year... I want to have some founder members. So will some of you guys, and I wrote to 12 of them, and ten, nine came back and said, yeah, I want to be a founder. Excellent. So we got yeah. about 27, 30K from founders. Yeah. And then we doubled that with some donations from, yes. from philanthropists. Fantastic. But with the view that in the future, the members have to pay. Fantastic. And what's your role? I'm the director. Yeah. I'm the sort of orchestra. So you are a serial yeah. social founder. Yeah, well, I am. But I mean, the gorgeous thing about this is that I'm, I'm hardly employing anybody. It's a much easier concept. Well, it's it about is an easier concept. Networking, networking sharing, best sharing, practice. and yeah. 
stirring and you know it well, suits me admirably right now i take my hat off to you james well done it's fantastic that you've you've, you've not just sat back and gone back to guernsey and the the farming and everything you're actually well, sharing I'll, I'll do a bit of that the too. amazing learnings that you've had over the last 25 30 years globally and in a world where it's so much easier now to share absolutely information right. globally absolutely through digital right. and, and we can else. communicate so fast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can have a Skype call or whatever it is. Yeah. And people well, in Taiwan and, you know, West Coast of America, yeah. they can be on the call yeah. and we can agree things. And, it's and just... in a way, the great thing about the fact that you've set up a separate organisation to Changing yeah. Faces is that the two can work side by side, Absolutely. can complement each other. Changing they do Faces promote each other. is part of the alliance. Yes. So, you know, it's, so it's and a, the campaign for face equality came from Changing Faces. Yeah. We're just trying to turn it into a movement. Yes, I, I love it. And <laughs> what we're going to do is make sure that there's a really lots of information on the Social Founder website. Thank you. And uh, because Social Founders, as you know, is now a global network. Exactly. So lots of the countries that we have incredible founders in will be interested in this if they're not already. And I want so, to go and meet them. Yeah, and yes. When I'm in wherever it is, I shall look up on, on your on your website who's in Sri Lanka or India or Definitely. Yeah. I definitely that's very exciting. The other thing that now, I just just want to say was yes. that I did find uh in one particular group of people uh very strong um alliance and solidarity and that was with people in the disability movement yeah and if you remember the dda was passed in 95 just for our listeners just explain what the dda is disability discrimination act was passed in britain in 1995 yes uh the equality act came in in 2010 yes but the people that i met and and worked with through all these 25 years were very very important to me uh, because they gave me the sense that I wasn't alone in all of this. We were all on yeah. on a march yeah. to enhance life prospects for people with disfigurements and disabilities. And it's very exciting. And, and actually, Dining with a Difference, which is an, my third little... Oh, I love Dining my, with a Difference. Tell well, us quickly. Well, Dining with a Difference is such a fun idea. Yeah. I mean, and it was your idea, wasn't it? Was it was my idea yes. with Simon Minty and Phil Friend. And we take, we're taken out to dinner by top boards. And it's a choreographed dinner, and during which they get surprised. And then they get confidence that they can deal with disability as yes. a strategic business issue, yes. not as a charity issue. And, and in the course of a dinner, we've seen all sorts of changes happen. People going, "Oh yeah, I'm going back. I'm going back to work tomorrow in a different headset." We'll and make sure that there's lots of information God. about dining with a difference. I like dining with a difference, but it's not the only magic. Uh-huh. But the important thing is that there are lots of people that I've had privilege to work with who are magicians in their own way. And that's really been exciting. Well, James Partridge, OBE, and we haven't talked about that. You must have felt so proud when you got your OBE. Congratulations. Thank you. You are a magician and you have made magic happen for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who have facial disfigurement or their friends and their family, their employers. You've really changed opinion. And Thank provided you. support, and still do through the work that Changing Faces is continuing to do now. Absolutely. And your book, and now the global network, which is so exciting. Let's just end 
with maybe one or two of your absolute top tips for anybody listening who is already a social founder or perhaps is thinking of becoming a social founder. You've talked about so many things in this amazing interview, but do you want to just just give one or two top tips before we finish? Well, I think the first is pick your leadership people, trustees and top management with great care. Uh They mustn't be anything other than critical friends. Essential. Absolutely key. Second, do not be afraid to go and ask. Asking is part of social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. You can't get away with it. You can't get away with not doing it. Many people say, I couldn't possibly do that. You just have to teach yourself how to do it and have no scruples about doing it. And sometimes you'll get no, Mm -hmm. but don't treat a no as anything other than yes, maybe. Ah, that's lovely. That's a great, great way to end. Except I'm not going to quite end there because I'm going to ask you one more question, which is what has been your greatest joy in being a social founder? Because we always talk about the joys and challenges Mm. of being a social founder. Mm. Um. Well, I think, I think Campbell and Michael Young, who was the founder of the Consumers Association, and they were such great allies at the start. And I must say that that event at the Gherkin, yes. that we had the 25th there. Yes, which was so wonderful. And I stood and I looked and I could see my children, my wife. They were all enthralled with this. And I was enormously proud that that was, you know, we'd, we'd got that far. It's not finished, but it was a fantastic sense of satisfaction, joy, call call it what you will. That, James, is such an inspirational way to end this incredible interview. And I've got a big lump in my throat because I was there and I've seen you work so hard to make Changing Faces the success that it is. So congratulations. Thank you for this interview. And thank you, James, so much for joining us on The Social Founder. You haven't done so badly. I think the old magician comes into play with you too. Well, thank you for joining us on The Social Founders podcast and we'll look forward to hearing how Mm. the next stage goes as well. So follow-up interview, please, in a year. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you, James. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.socialfounder.org. Then you can hear about our events, blogs and founder stories. You can follow us on Twitter at Social Founders. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do leave us a great five-star review. This will really help spread the word. And of course, if you are a social founder or even thinking of becoming one, let me know. Thanks again. Caroline at Social Founders. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. Thank you.